From KYW News Radio, the Delaware Valley's news authority, this is Flashpoint. What's igniting debate online and in your community? I'm KYW Community Affairs reporter Cherry Gregg, and we'll run through the big issues of the week that are getting folks hot under the collar. Coming up on this podcast. 50 years ago this week, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. gave the ultimate sacrifice for change. He was just 39, but he had the heart of someone in their 60s. And today, activists are still paying a price. Particularly when they are confronted. Lives will be lost, but lives have always been lost. Those on the front lines take a look back and forward at the cost of resistance. She's been brought in by Philadelphia's new district attorney to review the integrity of the office's convictions. Probably have a lot of wrongful convictions in Philadelphia based on eyewitness identifications. The cases show focus on and why there's so much buzz around this hire. Hey guys, listen up. When you're done with the show, would you do me a favor? Please provide a review and rate this podcast. And feel free to provide feedback often. We need reviews to push us to the top. Now back to the show. Thanks all. Welcome back to Flashpoint. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. The focus is the sacrifice required by resistance. This week, the nation marked the 50th anniversary of the assassination of a king. Dr. Martin Luther King, the apostle of nonviolence in the civil rights movement, has been shot to death in Memphis, Tennessee. The country, the world, all mourned the loss of this change agent, but King was not the only one who lost his life in the struggle for racial equality. Emmett Till, Megger Evers, and scores, no hundreds, even thousands, were murdered for their defiance in the face of oppression. In recent weeks, activist Erica Gardner, the daughter of Eric Gardner, who was choked to death by police in New York, died of a heart attack. She was 27. So what is the real cost of resistance and how do those leading the charge stay alive long enough to make change with me in the studio to discuss this flashpoint is candace mckinley an activist with black lives matter philadelphia we also have alexa ross of philly thrive an environmental justice organization on the phone we have dr Molefe asante chair of the department of africology and african-american studies at temple university he's also author of erasing racism welcome everybody to flashpoint Thank you. you. Historically, activists, agitators, and dissenters are at the forefront of the press for change in America, but few discuss the price they pay for these efforts. I want to start with our two activists in the room. Candace, you've held Know Your Rights workshops, do all sorts of trainings of young activists. What do you tell them that when you step in the forefront like this, what's the price? In the case of those trainings are about what type of risk you face from the state when you step up, violence, police surveillance, um, and brutality, arrests during protests. And so we talk a lot about self-care, making sure you just take care of like your pressing physical needs, like when you're thinking about protests, like making sure you have your medication, water, food, things like that. And also a lot about solidarity, just so that other people support you and have your back in case you are arrested and caught up with the courts, because that can be a lot of a psychological toll, a lot of cost to you financially, um, just a lot of stress. And We also talk about just like mental health, self-care as well, making sure that you just have a variety of supports around you to support you through that work. When you talk about environmental justice, worldwide, people fighting for environmental issues, they're getting literally losing their lives. That's right. And the the impact people take on from doing this kind of work, I think, and Philly Thrive is a 
multiracial cross-class organization. And so the impact that different folks have to experience taking up leadership in this fight is really important. We look at that as a multiracial organization. Mm. Um, We have members who live in public housing and rely on the city for their housing and can lose that. Um, We have young people who are thinking about how to build their lives and deciding to take on a decisive direction, a vow of poverty to not be able to build on their finances that I think the price comes in all different um, stripes and colors. And when I first became an organizer, a really important lesson that I learned, someone told me is that the members always know the ri- what's at stake and what the risk is and never hide that from them and be really upfront about that. Um, and in Philly Thrive, we have a principle of um, take care of ourselves and each other. So mutual aid is really, really key to developing the kinds of organizations to not only resist the systemic oppression, racism, classism, environmental destruction, but also to show up for each other in our lives, help each other with homework, attend funerals of each other's family members. I think organizations are key structures that we develop in this work for supporting each other in all the ways that our psychological, mental, yeah. emotional health can suffer from Taking leadership. And I want Dr. Asante to provide some historical context here because people, everybody knows Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., right? Mm -hmm. But there's a lot of folks who went down and lost a lot that nobody's ever heard of. You really are on target here with this. Both of the comments are really uh, right on target as well. And many times we forget that when the African-American people first started petitioning and demonstrating against injustice. Many times we did not have all of the pieces in place to support the people who were Mm. involved in the demonstrations. So one of the contributions and legacies of Martin Luther King Jr. is that the nonviolent protest movement also trained people and not only train people in terms of how to take care of themselves, but also provided for the demonstrators certain kinds of supports, particularly, for example, in the case of legal support. Mm. Uh, Fred Gray, who was himself about the same age as Martin Luther King Jr., was his personal attorney from a very early age. In fact, uh, soon as the Montgomery bus boycott started, Fred Gray, who had just finished law school in Cleveland, uh, also moved to um, uh, Montgomery and uh, Tuskegee in that area and became the person who always would go and bail Dr. King out. So demonstrators need to have, or activists need to have in place, particularly uh, when they are confronted with the state or the government they, and, and with opposition, they need to have in place legal support as well, as well as medical support and so forth. And King was a tactician. He was not just simply an uh, orator. Uh, sometimes we put on him that yeah. he was a philosopher of nonviolence, but he was just a tactician. He also believed in long-term strategy. He, uh, well, That's what he, made him he was so also brilliant. A yeah. Yes, because he he yeah. was very much about philosophy. And, and yeah. I, I just want to point out that there's a lot of people who are doing their own activism. They aren't necessarily mm-hmm. with organizations. Mm-hmm. And people have online activists. They had different ways. And they're losing jobs. That's right. From a post. Uh, mm-hmm. speaking and, and, of, yeah. So, I mean, there's and, different ways that you, you, not just when you're in a protest on the front lines, but there's a lot of other stressors. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. One, one, one of the things that Stokely Carmichael, Kwame Torre, used to say before his death 
was that people ought to be in an organization. If you're not in an organization, you will find that you will often suffer individually and suffer alone. I have many people come to me one-to-one because they're losing their job, they're having to fight with the department and the city government or in uh, corporations or at universities, and they're single individuals because they're, they're not part of Black Lives Matter. They're not part of the activist contingent and the NAACP and so forth. So that's why Kwame Torrey was correct that you got to organize, you got to be part of an organization. Mm-hmm. Is that the, sort of what yeah. you all tell people, that that's the value you get by joining? Because people are getting, I mean, people lose families. I mean, Dr. Could you mm-hmm. think about Dr. King in the context? It wasn't just him who suffered. His, yes. his mm-hmm. wife lost her husband. His yes. four children mm-hmm. lost their father. Mm-hmm. It wasn't like he was a rich man because he wasn't right. at home working every day. So there's a lot of, I mean, I mean, can we talk about the realities of this and Alexa and Kansas jump in because you guys are are out there. One thing that we do like talk a lot about is mutual support and with that having trying to like create um, safe spaces so that we can like do like collective healing together and also have one another's back um, when it comes to like loss of job or even health concerns, um, especially mm-hmm. like in black activist circles, like yeah. a lot of people don't talk about um, just the level of stress that you have. Um, one, just as a black person who's somewhat aware in the society, so that means that you are in a constant state of rage. But also when you choose to actually step up and be um, an activist and try to like do what you can about the systems that are daily oppressing you, that brings on it a lot of um, internal stress and, and physical health impacts that people don't talk about. So mm-hmm. in Black Lives Matter Philly, there's a lot of emphasis on um, therapy, um, and, and, and healing, um, also just like healthy eating, um, you know, how we take care of ourselves physically and in, in our day to day lives being really important. And one thing that I always found like very like sad and so many things are just rages and sad about um, Dr. King's assassination is that when they did autopsy for him and he was just 39, but he had the heart of someone in their 60s because of the level right. of stress that he mm, yeah. had to go under. And like and, and, and for us, like we talk about the surveillance and that we're worried about that. And, you know, we've we face backlash, but not on the level that, you know, King did, you know, with like the FBI you know, like calling his house and sending him death threats and, you know, this constant like pressure. But it does take a toll physically. So that that is something that we talk about that people have to be mindful of. And just the idea, the interventions that people do for each other and just and not just the uh, the systems you're going after but people the attacks you you take especially online now bullying mm-hmm. um just mm-hmm. saying just being an activist sometimes you get trolled there's a lot mm-hmm. of other pressures and attacks that people take by speaking out yeah yeah and sure i think in philly thrive something that's been amazing to me these two there's a Two sides of the coin here. One, we need organization and we need community to protect ourselves, to make sure that if a leader does get targeted by, you know, by the state or by, you know, the fossil fuel industry, in our case, of Philly Thrive, we've got the largest oil refinery on the East Coast and in South Philadelphia. They've got tons of money. They're backed by the Carlisle Group, who creates the pepper spray used in Ferguson to um, charter schools. So we have to build organization not only to protect and defend ourselves and our communities, but also that's where our liberation lies. That's where when we have a group of people that 
this rarely happens in society as it's so segregated, as divisions are so deep. To have an organization where people across lines of difference can actually support each other to become the highest versions of ourselves, to lead in ways that we feel terrified yeah. initially. Organization is key, um, like the professor was saying, not only to, for our protection and for our defense, but also where we have the most to grow as leaders and evolve ourselves as humans by taking collective action. And as you mentioned, uh, Dr. Asante, and, and picking up on your point, Alexa, I mean, this was, these are strategic moves. When you take direct action, mm-hmm. people are thinking about this. It's it's almost like it's an army <laughs> situation. <laughs> y'all, in, y'all in the headquarters coming up with ways, in the most effective ways to use the bodies yeah. and the minds of the people who are, who are represent the resistance. Absolutely. It, it is a, it is like an army. And in fact, it is an army. I mean, and, and, and all of the activists who are engaged even now, uh, uh, whether it is for the environment, which I mean, which we all should be really deeply engaged in and involved in, or Black Lives Matter or any of the, uh, uh, the organizations against uh, all forms of brutality and oppression in the society, um, and I like the statement that was made about the highest versions of our moral selves or the highest versions of mm. ourselves, because I, that's a powerful expression of the disdain for injustice and the disdain for un, uh, unfairness and the striving for sort of an ethical tradition, which I believe the king himself was involved in. I mean, he became... Uh, for a moment in America's history, the moral leader of the nation. Talk definitely. about the mindset it takes to be a soldier in the army and to carry it out, not just for a short period of time, because a lot of this efforts of resistance takes long time, years. Mm-hmm. When you go to work every day, if you're also an activist like I am, I always tell people I'm not a public intellectual. I'm an activist intellectual. What I discover is that oppression is all around us. Mm-hmm. And there are always people who are being oppressed or people who are being victimized. And my office is almost like uh, every day people come in with issues. But I'm a professor. <laughs> but they come in with issues. Students come in with issues. Community people come in with issues. And that's important because I am vigilant and I, I grew up in Georgia, came out of the uh, period in when, where you couldn't go to this war water fountain, you couldn't go to this toilet, you couldn't eat at this restaurant or cafe, and so forth. So I understand all the subtleties now of how racism operates within the society and within institutions with all kinds of nuances that sometimes you miss. But I fortunately have been able to sort of observe some of them and to write about it. My book, Erasing Racism, The Survival of the American Nation, is written exactly about some of these nuances that we see. Every People day. don't really understand that, you know, when you are an activist, you can become a target. One of the things that we talk about a lot in Black Lives Matter is, is this principle of loving engagement. So it's the idea of like how do you sort of like lovingly call in people and educate one another. And it relates also how do you build movements and get people to join with the attack mm. culture because there is this thing of like a sort of like a woke Olympics where you try to one up one another and sort of yeah. like call out people's mistakes in a really harsh way. You no, know, everyone's coming in at different levels. Not everyone has the same vocabulary or, you know, the same like level of like wokeness yes. or whatever. And mm-hmm. so like, how do you engage with this person saying like, 
oh, yeah, of course, we all say all lives matter. We believe that. But we say black lives matter because blah, 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 blah. Mm-hmm. And like, how do you engage in people mm-hmm. that was, to bring them along? I called it the war of the woke. Yeah, mm-hmm. because there was actually I mean, not just the price with with the external folks you're going against, but within the uh, so-called woke community, people who are um, trying to make change. There were you are not woke enough trauma that that lies in each of us from the various experiences that we have that our generations above us have had are looking for ways to come are looking for healing. We've been talking about that. I think one way that that can accidentally come out is at in each other's directions. And I think we can target certain activists for mistakes that get made, certain organizations for, um, you know, for or, you know, organizing with a strategy that. People, other people disagree with. And I think if we're going to win, um, we absolutely have to stand up and pose attacks on each other to make sure we have a culture where we're actually supporting organizations to be able to correct their mistakes and come back from mistakes because we're going to make mistakes to support organizers who are giving their all on the daily. They're going to make mistakes to be able to come back from that to not allow for the fostering of an attack culture within yes. our own spaces. And so how do you solve that? And so I do have to wrap it up as we see more and more uh, people step up and speak out in 15 seconds do you think the price of resistance will go up or down and do you think it'll be worth it candace i'm gonna start with you i think a lot of people are suffering and like feeling the consequences of stepping up but a lot of people don't know so i think it will feel like it'll go up because more people will be aware of what's happening and talking about what's happening and so the risk will be wider spread it depends on the algorithm of whether or not we can get more people involved the more people you get involved then it will go down the less people involved, it will go up. Coming from a climate change perspective, I think for us to actually transition our economy to no longer rely on fossil fuels, we're going to have to take swift action in the course of a decade. So I do think lives will be lost, but lives have always been lost, and it will absolutely be worth it. All right. Thank you to Malefe Asante, Candace Ross, and Alexa McKinney for coming on Flashpoint and talking about this issue in the news. Next up, she's been hired by Philadelphia DA Larry Krasner to sniff out conviction errors. It just seemed like it was the perfect opportunity um, to do good. Her focus and where she believes there's kinks in Philadelphia's criminal justice system. This is Flashpoint, where we talk about the issues that get everyone hot and bothered. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg, and wrongful convictions get Philadelphians hot under the collar. In fact, the Philadelphia DA's office took heavy criticism in the past, with very little progress being had in its conviction review unit. Then in comes DA Larry Krasner, who hit the reset button when he hired Patricia Cummings, a former defense lawyer and prosecutor and the former head of the very successful Dallas County District Attorney's Conviction Integrity Unit. Now she's here and there's a lot of hope. Patricia, welcome to Flashpoint. Thank you. Good to be here. Please explain to the people how you view this office and what it's designed to do. I have to kind of take that on two levels. And there's the unit and what the unit does. But I think the second aspect to your question mm-hmm. is the office. Under the prior administration, it was the Conviction Review Unit. Mm-hmm. And we have changed it to Conviction Integrity Unit. Prosecutors' offices really seem to 
understand on some level the work the units are doing is an integral part of what district attorneys do nationwide. Mm-hmm. And that is, number one, first and foremost, rec- recognizing that we get it wrong sometimes. And unfortunately, when it comes to criminal justice, those mistakes can be very, very costly in the sense that we could be convicting innocent people. When we convict innocent people, that necessarily means that the guilty people are out in society free to commit other crimes. Mm -hmm. So the work is incredibly important. One of the criticisms that this office had far before you came was that people felt that it wasn't adequately staffed and that they didn't see any movement. I don't want to give anybody the false impression that I've got some unique knowledge to say that the unit didn't do anything. And and quite frankly, I think on the opposite end, I think that we've got proof that the unit did do some Mm -hmm. good work. It probably wasn't adequately staffed. Mm -hmm. And kind of secondarily to that, I think that the success of the individual unit is measured by the buy-in of the leadership in the office as a whole. My understanding is that did not exist in the past. And when you don't have that, you have real difficulties trying to carry out the mission of what a unit like this really has a goal of achieving. Now, with Larry Krasner as the DA, I think that that makes the game totally different. Now, this is not easy work. Sometimes this type of issue takes many, many years. Do you have a method for reviewing cases? You know, what makes one case a priority over another? The short answer is we do have a method, but I have to tell you that the method evolves depending Mm -hmm. on what we see our job is. And then as far as priority, you have a lot of people saying, please review my case, something bad happened to me. But you'll have people that fall into all categories. Some will be those that are serving a death sentence on death row, Mm -hmm. whereas at the opposite extreme, you may have somebody who is already served their sentence and they're part of society again. All of the individuals that are coming to you have been wrongfully convicted. Which one gets your attention first? Obviously, Mm -hmm. you look at the case where the person is incarcerated. We have very limited resources, and we've got to make sure that the resources we do have are devoted to the people that are in need of the help the most at the moment. Is that a limitation we haven't, or have you put that in place yet? You know, we are working on our protocols, regardless Mm -hmm. of whether or not that's an explicit requirement or eligibility. You are going to look at the ones where the person is incarcerated first. And I want to just back up a little bit because you are a former defense attorney, also a prosecutor, and actually worked on um, a major case that ended with the individual being exonerated. Could you talk about your background a little bit and your work in Dallas and sort of why you decided to come to Philadelphia and be a part of this? As a young lawyer, I was a prosecutor. I then shifted over to criminal defense work. And it's during that shift that I actually got involved with the Michael Morton case, Mm -hmm. which kind of led me down this path of devoting my professional time to trying to not only help those that have been wrongfully convicted, but quite frankly, to identify the cases and then figure out what could be done to right a wrong. And it is in that context that I had been asked a few years back whether or not I'd be interested in running the Conviction Integrity Unit in Dallas, the first real Conviction Integrity Unit in Mm -hmm. the nation. Mm -hmm. And Dallas is also the unit that is most responsible for a high number of DNA exonerations. Mm -hmm. There was a real recognition that at some point you kind of run out of the DNA to get you to the exoneration. And then you have to confront the question of, are you willing to look at the harder cases? Fortunately for me, I kind of stepped right into getting to do that and exercise that kind of expanded view of this kind of work. Eventually what happens in Dallas is the elected district attorney that had hired me resigned. I decided 
I needed to step aside because the new person needed to have the right to pick whoever they wanted to run that unit. I went back to Austin, which really had been my home of many, many years. And I started getting right back in the swing of things by doing work for the Innocence Project. And interestingly enough, Larry had come to Austin. Looking around, yeah. Yeah, he was was looking (laughs) around and he was talking to folks, trying to get ideas. And one of the conversations that took place was what would conviction integrity work look like? And fortunately, I had been invited to that meeting. Still, I wasn't thinking about going to Philadelphia. Um, I got a phone call. Was I interested in going to Philadelphia and working for Larry? My gut reaction was, of course. Yeah. I just thought would come once in a lifetime at this point for me, working for Larry Krasner, working in a city where I thought there was plenty to do. Yeah. And so it just seemed like it was the perfect opportunity um, to do good. I've been told by the Quatron Center, two to eight percent of cases are likely to have the wrong result. What are some of the reasons, the red flags for you that says this is something we need to take a look at? Often what you see are the same four or five, maybe six categories of factors that play a role in the wrongful convictions. I'm not going to spend time talking about that because I do think Philadelphia is unique. Unfortunately, what I think we're going to be seeing over and over again is we're going to see maybe two or three of those factors reoccurring. We probably have a lot of wrongful convictions in Philadelphia based on eyewitness identifications. We will also see problems with false confessions. Yes. I say that Mm -hmm. on the heels of the Anthony Wright case. Mm -hmm. Uh, Finally, I'm anticipating we might see maybe some Brady violations, governmental misconduct. When you have disclosure problems, it can happen at all ends of the Mm -hmm. system. Mm -hmm. Um, So I I have a feeling we're going to see those. The question in my mind is whether or not when we see them, whether or not we're going to be able to do enough to remedy them. There was this list of police officers that circulated. Does that type of thing, when you have police officers possibly having issues with the integrity of their testimony, does that raise a flag for you? Yes. And, and let me kind of define the flag real quick. I mm. mean, the, the raising of the red flag is quite simply, we have an obligation as prosecutors to make sure we are disclosing to the defense what we call Brady and Giglio information, which is constitutional doctrine that tell us if we have something that is favorable, and that's defined as Mm -hmm. exculpatory, impeaching, or mitigating, then we must disclose it to the defense. It is very clear that when we talk about various instances where police have gotten in trouble, that we have an obligation to make sure we get that information and that we turn it over to the defense. So yes, it it, it is a big deal. It's a big deal really probably for all prosecutors' offices throughout the country. Yes, it's a red flag. It's one that we take very seriously, and we are currently spending a lot of time trying to make sure that we are putting policies in place Mm -hmm. so that we will comply with our obligations and we will minimize the risk of somebody being convicted wrongfully based on a failure to turn over information that could have been used for impeachment purposes in regard to a police officer's testimony. Yeah. And my last couple questions for you are this. Number one, what excites you um, about this role now? had to breathe for a minute thinking about that because, you know, on so many levels, just about all of it is exciting. Um, It's exciting to know that I've got the support of my leader to do the work that I think needs to be done. It's exciting to know that there are cases out there that are just waiting for somebody to take a close look at. And after that close look, it's exciting to know that it may mean that we might 
be able to release people that have been wrongfully convicted. And it's exciting to know that when we do that, we may be able to identify and prosecute the person who really did commit the crime. My last question to you, what does it feel like when your work results in someone being exonerated? You feel very relieved. Mm-hmm. Relieved that, you know, something terrible that happened has maybe been corrected. Well, with that, I want to say thank you to you, Patricia Cummings. Welcome to Philadelphia. And we look forward to seeing the Conviction Integrity Unit at work. Thank you. Next up is National Library Week, a place for them to discover and learn how a West Philadelphia nonprofit saw a problem with Philly schools and is fixing it one library at a time. This is Flashpoint, and I'm Cherry Gregg. We here at KYW are all about community, and this week, it's all about National Library Week, which begins on April 8th, and this year's theme is Libraries Lead. In Philadelphia, there are about 220 schools, yet the district employs only about a half dozen full-time certified librarians. Many schools do not have a library at all, but in comes the West Philadelphia Alliance for Children or WePAC. It's a nonprofit that has reopened more than a dozen libraries and Philadelphia Public Schools with me in the studio to discuss their ongoing effort is Executive Director Anisha Sinha. Welcome to Flashpoint. Hi, thanks for having me. So I first learned about WePAC back in the day. I think y'all had only opened about a handful and now you're at more than a dozen. Tell me what WePAC does and how you're able to open so many libraries and schools. Yeah, so what we do is we partner with elementary schools predominantly throughout Philadelphia and we reopen their libraries. So like you said, there's about 220 schools in the district and only about six certified librarians employed by the district. So that means that most elementary school kids don't have the chance to go to library. We renovate and shelve the libraries. We try to mimic what they would have in a library run by a certified librarian. And so what is it like with no library? Does it mean that there's no books? So not necessarily. So a lot of the schools actually have libraries that have been shuttered. So sometimes the libraries are used as storage or it's a nice big room to use for professional development and classroom space. And they often have book collections in them, but there's nobody to run the library and manage it and maintain it. WePAC fills that gap by bringing in volunteers to do that part of it. And we also make sure that the collection is up to date. We take on that work so the school doesn't have to do it. We're 100% volunteer driven. So we're a very small staff. Um, I'm there. We have a program manager and then about 170 volunteers. Talk about how having a library back in a school that didn't have one has transformed the school. Our space is really a place for them to discover and learn about books and reading and get excited about topics that they might not otherwise have access to. So that's what we're really trying to do is cultivate a a true love of books and a love for reading so that as they progress and they get older and older, they can start to read to learn. But we want to get them excited about reading before they have to do that. Yeah. And that's why I think WePAC focuses on elementary schools. Is that right? Exactly right. Yeah. So we usually focus on kindergarten through fourth grade, um, just knowing that probably one in three students aren't reading at grade level by the time they enter fourth grade. And that's a pretty pivotal year. Yeah. Read by fourth is a big Mm -hmm. citywide effort to get kids reading by fourth. And how important is this library access and reading when we talk about literacy? Because... A lot of people in America are functionally illiterate. Right. The library provides a space for kids to 
engage with literature and words and reading in a totally unstructured environment. They're not reading because they have to read a book for a school mm. book report. They're not reading a math textbook. They're just reading for pure fun. And I think it gets them thinking about how reading is a critical skill beyond school. And for a lot of our kids, they don't have home libraries necessarily or um, the public library, the free library has great programs, but they may not be able to get to them. So school especially libraries can. Especially can't little go, You have to be escorted. Yeah, yeah. You, ha- you have to have somebody take you and that's not always an option. And so if we can help bridge that gap a little bit while they're in school and kind of in a safe space already, why not? And so National Library Week runs April 8th through the 14th. Tell me what WePAC does. I know I've, I've had the pleasure of coming and reading to kids a few years ago and different we'll people come. <laughs> and it was like the kids are really into it. Yeah, they're so into it. So a typical day at a WePAC library looks different based on whichever school you're at. But each each class comes in. They get a read aloud our volunteer team leaders and teams, they curate very interesting yeah. and exciting books for the kids. And then they get to check books in. They get to check them out. Um, some of the schools have buddies where they do one-on-one reading with the kids. And then in addition to that, we also do library cafes where we invite guest speakers like yourself to come in and the kids love it. Their faces light up. It's super exciting for them. We do that all year and we'll probably do some special activities with the kids for National Library Week. And so where can people, I mean, I know that you guys accept books, donations, you also accept money donations <laughs> and you need volunteers. You can visit us at our website, which is www.wepack.org. Um, and that has pretty much all of the different ways you can get involved with us. For our volunteers, we're always looking for people to help. We're always collecting books, mostly for younger kids. So the kindergarten through fourth, though some of our schools were looking for those middle school, you know, young, young adult books. Yeah, because a lot of people, as your kids grow, you have no idea what to do with all these books that are in great condition. Yeah. And you guys would we can take them. them, Yeah. Put them Um, to good use. And we think it's really important to make sure that the books go to their best possible use. So if it's not a book that we can add to our collection, we we have other nonprofit partners that will make sure get the books out into the community if we can't use them. But usually we can. So awesome. Money, books, or donations accepted at wepac.org, and that's W-E-P-A-C dot O-R-G. Thank you so much, Anisha, for coming in and talking about your effort and for, you know, putting books into the hands of children. Thank you for having me. That's it for the Flashpoint Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this exclusive content. You can follow KYW News Radio on Twitter and let us know what you think by using the hashtag Flashpoint. You can also follow me at Cherry Gregg. You can subscribe to the show by using the radio.com app, iTunes, or whatever platform you use to get your podcasts. If there's an issue that makes you hot under the collar, let us know and we'll walk you through the flames. As Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. once said, there comes a time when one must take a position. That is neither safe, nor politic, nor popular. But you must take it, because conscience tells them it's right. I'm your host, Cherry Gregg. Until next week, thanks for listening.